Well, we've been doing a series called God Give Us Eyes to See, which essentially is God, give us eyes to see. You have a vision for us, for our community, and for our church. So how do we pay attention to what you're doing? God, I have my big ideas. I think I know what's best. My friends think they know what's best. But what does it look like, God, for us to pause and have you give us eyes to see what you're doing? And over the past few weeks, we've talked about, God, give us vision for our own lives. Last week, we talked about vision for others. And this week, we're talking about vision for the church. Now, we all came here today with a preconceived idea, notion, or a vision of what we think church could and should be. Why does the church of Jesus Christ exist? Why are you here? I'm literally asking you, why are you here? You came here for a reason. You got up sometime before 10 a.m. And you put on clothes that you thought would be okay for people to see you in. You walked in these doors. You sang songs in one direction at a few people that were singing back at you. And then you're going to listen to a guy talk for 30 minutes to three hours. We don't know how long this will go. You came here. You came for a reason. Why is you why why is you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Now over the centuries, a lot of people have had a lot of opinions about what the church could and should be. They when they think of the church, they envision something like the Roman Catholic Church. And I think I have a picture of the Vatican. Something high church Major liturgy, very formal, historical, seems to be very fancy and stuff like that. Um, Roman Catholics, you think of something a little bit more formal. So if you came into this room, this is a little different. Why are we in a public school? You know, that, that could be hard for you or interesting to you. Perhaps you don't think of a Roman Catholic church. Maybe you think of a very cutting edge church with lasers Laser beams splicing every direction, and there's fog machines, smoke machines, and all the la- and all the pastors much, dress much cooler than I do. They got these long baggy shirts and the really cool glasses. They got zippers on the side that go to we don't know where those zippers go, but it's like Chris can't pull it. And their shoes are so beautiful and complicated. Free hashtag preachers and sneakers. Like they're just. They're just like, and they're just so on point. They're like, ha ha. And they're very inspirational. Unlike what you're going to get over the next three hours in this sermon. Um, yeah, perhaps you think church should be really big. You think churches should be like mega churches. Maybe you grew up in a mega church. That's enormous. That's a picture of Lakewood church in Houston. That's like the actual size of the church. It's incredible. It's very similar to this, what we have going on here. Um, and, uh, and, <laughs> You like feel comfortable in there. This is me. I grew up in churches over 2,000 people. There's very few times when I wasn't a church that didn't have more than 2,000 people. I feel very comfortable being anonymous in a church. Maybe you think churches should be small. They shouldn't be outside of a living room. That's the only way to be missional. Uh, maybe you think church is all about like reaching the lost for Jesus. Maybe you think church should be primarily about seeking justice and mercy in the community. Or maybe, just maybe, your perfect church sits on the corner of Lincoln and Montana and meets Sundays at 10 a.m. And uh, I don't know if we have a picture. That's not our, that's not our church. Uh, <laughs> uh, there we are. <laughs> Maybe this is your perfect church. Uh, Punchline denied. All right. So now one of the more important things to understand about the 
Christian faith and the church is to understand uh, like differences in terminology. And I won't go into much detail about this, but there's a difference between dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Uh, we may or may not have a slide on this, uh, but uh, no, that's not it. Is that dogma? No. There we go. Yeah, three terms to know about when discussing church. There's dogma, doctrine, and opinion. Now, what? No, uh, I think we have some definitions. Dogma are the inconvertible truths of the faith. Doctrines, they tend to be what the church follows over history. And sometimes doctrines can shift based on the context and what we feel like God's speaking to us. And then opinions is everything else. Everything else we think or feel about a subject. Now, when we talk about church and we talk about what we think should happen in church, what we discover is most of the time, we're not actually talking about dogma. The inconvertible truths about, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. We're not going to change our minds on that. That's like kind of what we believe. Uh, It's not really about doctrine, how we think about women, how we think about how we interact in the world, how we participate in renewing the world, kingdom theology and stuff like that. Most of the time, what we're talking about is our opinions. Our opinions. I think the service should be this long. I think our service should be that long. I think people should be like this. I think people should be like that. And I think it's really important for us to realize that much of what we discuss in church is really just our opinions. Now, today we're going to be taking a look at a set of verses in the Bible. It's actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians, the church in Ephesus, and the name of the book is called Ephesians. And what we're going to do is move beyond just like what we think our opinions should be or what others' opinions should be. And we're going to be open to what Paul felt like God was saying by the Holy Spirit, what the church actually could and should be, not just for ourselves, but for the world, what the church should be for the world. Now, what we're going to talk about today is not a comprehensive overview of the church, but it will give you some ideas about how you can participate with this church, or if you belong to another church, how you can join up with what that other church in your community is doing. So since we're not going to be doing a comprehensive overview of church, I do want to say a few things um, that we won't be discussing today. Uh, First is this, the church is not a religious country club. I want you to assume that you know this already today. We are not a group of people that's just, hey, we're all a part of the club. We're all in and all the other people are out. Uh, Outsiders uh, are going to burn in some lake of fire or something like that. We're not going to go into the country club aspects of the faith this morning. What we're going to do is focus in a different direction. Uh, the, The other thing, the church is not, the church is not a physical location. The church is not a physical location. What we discover from the Bible is that the church is not a building. The church is a people. It is a people uh, that believe and follow Jesus, and that's who makes up the church. And three things that we're also not going to talk about in detail uh, about what the church actually is, is a church is a people who love Jesus. It's a functioning community, and it's the hope of the world. Jesus invented the church To be a sign of his kingdom, Uh, we were supposed to be a witness of his kingdom. We get to witness all the cool things that he's doing in the world. And we are a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus comes back fully and rules and reigns over the world. Now, all the things I just mentioned, they're awesome. But we're not going to talk about them today. But I want you to assume those things because this is not a comprehensive look at what the church could and should be. But it is a clear vision of something that God has for us today. And so what we're going to be doing is diving into a few particularly uh, interesting things about what Paul the Apostle has to say 
uh, about uh, the church. And uh, we've called our series, uh, God Give Us Eyes to See, because we want to pay attention to what God might be doing in this community. So I've called today's talk, um, God Give Us Eyes to See, uh, Vision for the Church. And let's take a look at some verses. But before we do that, why don't we pray and invite God's presence? God, we invite you to be here today. And uh, we know you're here, but like we just want to open our hearts to what you want to do. I ask that you'd speak through me and start speaking to people in this room, God. Church is a funny business, God. And I know there's people here that have been hurt by the church, burned by the church. They're cynical about this thing called the church, God. But I know that you're more powerful than our cynicism and our burns. And you can bring healing to me. You can bring healing to the people in this room, God. And also, more than that, God, we believe and trust that you can go beyond our hurts and our pains. Uh, and you can actually give us vision for what this could be and should be. So, God, I ask that you would come and you would speak through me right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, we're going to be taking a look at the Bi- a book in the Bible. It's called Ephesians. And Ephesians is what the people of Ephesus were called. They were called the Ephesians. And Ephesus was an ancient city that could be found in what is modern-day Turkey. And what we see is the Holy Spirit gave Paul the Apostle a vision that is so big and so powerful and so exciting that should we choose to join up with it, our lives will be changed forever. It's much bigger than anything we could have dreamed up on our own. And it's much better than us operating separately from it and trying to follow Jesus. And so Paul's writing this letter. And throughout the letter, he's encouraging the Ephesian people, the Ephesian church to pursue unity and to pursue emotional maturity. Now, emotional maturity is something that we talk about often in this church. Emotional maturity can't outpace your spiritual maturity or spiritual maturity can't outpace your emotional maturity, which means you can know a lot about God. But if your life doesn't reflect what you know, then it's really not worth anything. We want our lives, what we do in our community and in our marriages and in our relationships and in our family to actually match up with what we believe. And Paul is calling the Ephesians to be one together And also to have their lives not be so hypocritical, their lives to match up. But what's really interesting about this is that he's calling for unity and maturity from the Ephesians. And in the meantime, he's giving them a vision about what the church could and should be. And so we pick up right in the middle of his letter. Like we could read the whole thing, but I'm not going to. We're going to pick up right in the middle in in Ephesians chapter 4. And in verse 1, we read this. It says... As a prisoner for the Lord, uh, Paul was imprisoned at the time, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, if you're following along in your notes, there's a first fill in the blank there. The church is a people who encourage you to chase your calling. Now, a lot of times when we think about calling, we think it's something that has to do with our jobs. Oh, I'm called to be a minister of the gospel and be a pastor. Oh, I'm called to be a scientist. I'm called to be a doctor. I'm called to be a nurse. I'm called to make really great commercials for Geico and be recognized on the street as the guy that does funny commercials. Whatever it is, you think of your job, what your position in life is supposed to be. And that's not what he's getting at. Paul is, when he talks about calling, he's talking about our calling to Jesus, the Messiah. 
That God is calling us to have complete loyalty and to have Jesus take precedence over everything else in our lives. Everything else. And what I see here, if you read into this a little bit, that this isn't a tone of guilt and shame. It's not like Paul is like the tone is like, you know, as a prisoner of the Lord, I'm in prison. Jeez, the least you could do is live up to the calling and follow Jesus. This isn't a mother who's pressuring her adult son to call her more often. The least you could do is call me a couple times a month. The least you could do is live up to your calling according to what I've, I'm suffering for the gospel and you're not doing. No, what he's doing here is he's saying like, look, because of all the amazing things that Jesus has done, you have an opportunity to respond and give God everything because God has given up everything for you. He's done everything for you. The founders of every, as I said earlier, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you the way to find God. But Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. He left his place in heaven. He came to earth and lived a perfect life. He healed people. He gave a new message establishing his kingdom. His kingdom would be, would be a kingdom of love. It wouldn't be a kingdom of force and showed the ultimate uh, thing by giving his life up in our place so that anyone who wants to draw near to him can draw near to Jesus. And Paul's like, my life is completely changed because of the good news of Jesus. So all I'm asking you, church of Ephesus, if you believe the same thing, just live up to it. Just do the same thing. Respond with the same kind of fervor that I am. And respond to the same calling that Jesus has given me and that he's given to you. And all I'm asking you to do is let Jesus be Lord over your life. Let Jesus lead your life and let him rule your life. Now, that's a lot, of, a lot easier said than done, isn't it? And if you're a follower of Jesus, the way that you live up to this calling is you let Jesus be Lord of your life. That means all the areas of your life. That means your relationships. That means your money. That means your sexuality. That means your ethnic identity. All the things. All the things get placed before Jesus. And we say, God, I want you to be over all these things. Now, sometimes we only want to give certain parts of our life to Jesus. And uh, we want to keep other parts for ourselves because we live in fear that if we were to give him that access to that part of our life, he would do something with it that we're not really sure we're comfortable with. And we know on like a, a human level, level that doesn't work, but somehow we think we can get away with it with God. Now, imagine if I treated God, the, uh, or let me say it this way. Imagine if I treated my wife the same way sometimes we treat God. What if I said... To Nikki, God, uh, Nikki, I give you all of me except for my body on these days. And I just said, no, that's, that's my time. I get to do what I want. Or what if I said, Nikki, I love you more than anything in the whole world. And your money is now my money and my money is now your money. But I'm going to spend all the money we have together on whatever I want. And I didn't check in with you at all. Or I said, Nikki, you, uh, you know, I would cross over the mountain range of blah, 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 whatever song and what you want to quote, till death do us part, where we're going to go our separate ways at death. But if my commitment to you stops, 
Uh, my commitment to you stops when it becomes inconvenient to me. Or if you challenge me in a way that you may think you'd be helping me, but if I don't feel like you're helping me, then I'm not going to listen to you. What do you think would happen to our marriage? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Family feud style. And it's over. That doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that with other human beings. Yet somehow we think that we can work with God that way. That somehow we think that like, well, you know, I only want to let God into certain parts of my life and not into other parts of my life. And now this is sometimes why I think we don't always hear from God. Now, let me share with you something I felt as a distinct impression as I was preparing for this message. Some of you today are struggling to hear from God. You need God to break through. You need God to break through in your marriage, uh, in your dating relationships. You have a financial need. uh, You have a big decision that you're facing, whatever it is. Now, sometimes when we seek clarity, the reason we're not getting clarity is because we live in a time tension that we call in the vineyard and at Pacific City Church, we call it the already and the not yet. That God's kingdom has come already in some ways, and we see people healed and we see people's lives transformed, but we also live in this tension of the not yet. It has not fully come yet. This is why some people don't get healed. This is why we still have sickness in the world. This is why we still see crime and other problems. We live in that tension. So sometimes we are just not very good at hearing what God has to say because we live in an already and not yet time frame. And another reason uh, we don't hear things uh, all that clearly is sometimes God is withholding sharing things from us because he wants us to trust him. And he wants us to persevere, even though we're not hearing things that we think we should be hearing from God. That God is testing us or moving us through a time where he wants to do something big at the end of it. And you haven't done anything wrong, but sometimes God just isn't speaking. He's doing something new in you, and he hasn't revealed it yet to you. But other times, besides those two exceptions, other times, sometimes there's another issue. And I have found that sometimes when it is hard to hear God's voice... It's because we've chosen to disregard lordship of Jesus in a certain area of our lives. But the Lord doesn't work that way. We, it's like we're at a, we drive up to an intersection and that we have to pass through and we don't like what we see. So we turn around and we go home, park our car, go to bed, wake up the next day, drive out. We, it's the only road out. We come to the same intersection. We don't like what we see. We turn around and we go drive back and we take a seat and park it uh, at our house again. And we just keep coming back to the same thing over and over again. And sometimes what happens is God wants to work with us on a particular issue. And if we're unwilling to allow Jesus to be Lord of our life in all of our lives, Sometimes we put a distance. We we become hardened. We can't hear what he has to say for us. Now, I don't know if that's everyone here, but I do want to make you aware that potentially, if you're having trouble hearing from God, sometimes that's the result of hardening your heart because you've chosen not to allow him to be Lord over a specific area. So what do you do if you're in this situation? It's pretty simple. You say, God, I am willing for you to be open. I'm willing to be open to everything. Uh, over my entire identity, who I am, my relationships, God, I want you to search me and I want you to do something new in me. I want you to be Lord over all those things. And maybe, just maybe, God will speak to you about the things he wants you to change or adjust in your life. And as a result of that, it may open new doors for you. Does that make sense? Uh, So basically, that's what Paul's getting at here. He says, live a life worthy of a calling, Uh, and, uh, when you live a life worthy of the calling, you're saying, Lord, you are Lord over everything. 
I mean, this is why we encourage you to be involved in this church or another church that promotes things like gospel-centered teaching or get involved in a church that has community groups where you meet in smaller groups where you're challenged and you can hear from God about certain things and people challenge you to live up to all that we have in Christ Jesus. Um, Well, if that's the lordship issue that Paul talks about there, uh, and we see the people of God, the church, uh, they're supposed to live up to this calling. We also see something else. We see that they're supposed to live differently towards each other. The church is called to interact in a way that demonstrates the difference that God is making in our lives. This is huge. Let me say it again. The church is called to be different. And the church needs to demonstrate that what they're doing by coming here actually does something. That their lives are actually a little bit better. That there's actually something qualitatively different that's coming from heaven and changing us. How do you live up to the call of Jesus? Well, Paul gives us some more ideas. Look at verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, be bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the church is a people who encourage you not just to chase your calling. The church is a people who encourage you to pursue unity. Why is unity important? Why can't we just sit in our apartments or mansions or in our cars and listen to a podcast from a really cool preacher and then have like 30 minutes of worship music? Why can't it just be me and Jesus? Paul is calling the church in Ephesus to pursue unity at all costs because it's required. And he's saying that the very nature of our faith requires unity among us. Think about it this way. Jesus comes into the world and he sets an example of love. And his love demonstration is fully shown when he dies in our place on the cross. Now, if people who claim to follow Jesus, Jesus followers... We are supposed to show that same kind of love. Just as love has been shown to us, we are now free to love others. We are also free to love people who are also in this room. And so unity becomes the least we can do. The least we can do is love the people that are sitting on our left and on our right. And Paul is saying Christians who are truly seeking Jesus will seek unity. But we know this isn't the case for many followers of Jesus. I can't tell you how many times I've had to break up arguments between people or people who don't get along. Not in this church, other churches, other assignments. This church has been perfect. Um, But we see this. Many Christians live in isolation. They don't like other people. They don't get along with other people. They live in discord with other Christians. They, They remain in quiet disdain and almost like a cynicism and in conflict with other people in the church. Uh, in many churches around this country, we see church splits and arguments and fighting and factions. And, and like the whole world is on the outside looking in at the church and they're saying, what is going on? You claim to follow Jesus. You claim to have spiritual power that's supernatural that comes from heaven. And none of you are even actually getting along. Why in the world would I be a part of what you're doing? There's no power. There's no demonstration. There's no witness 
for what you claim Jesus has done in your lives. And so, friends, the whole enterprise, everything we're doing when it comes to following Jesus and building a church is contingent upon unity and loving and caring for one another. It's a sign that God is actually maturing us and changing us. And we are the real deal. So how do we actually keep unity in the church? How do we actually grow closer together as a result of this thing called the church? Well, Paul actually gives us some answers. He says this. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. What does all this mean? Well, I mean, the words are pretty straightforward, but what do you think it means? It means like if we mess up, we say we're sorry. Like we just go to the person who's in the room. We go, look, I'm sorry. I apologize. I can't tell you how different that is than the rest of the world. What if we were a group of people that said we're sorry more often? Hey, look, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I won't let it happen again. And if you do let it happen, if I do let it happen again, I'm really, really sorry. I really won't happen. I'm really sorry. It means that we don't try to impose our will upon people. Sometimes when you get around a certain person, maybe it's like they're always trying to force, not you, other people, they're always trying to force their will upon a situation. So let's be gentle. Let's leave some room for what God wants to do in the room. Maybe it doesn't always have to be my way. Uh, It also means that we go to the person who's offended us directly. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 18. He said, if a person offends you, go to him directly and say, hey, here's something that's between us and I want to fix it. Here's how you offended me. And then if that doesn't work, you bring someone else with you. Hey, last time I came to you, it didn't really quite work out. And we're still arguing. I want to bring this other person in to kind of mediate and figure this out. And if that doesn't work, you bring a whole gang of people. And, and what Jesus is saying here is like, look, go directly to the person. And how, uh, how different is that? than what we see in the regular world. People talking about, I mean, it's oftentimes uh, people would much rather talk to everyone in the whole world than actually talk to the person they have a problem with. So what do we do as Christians? We do the thing that's different and we go to people directly who have offended us and we try to make it right. So we're humble, we're gentle, we're patient. This means that we're patient with difficult people in the church. And if you don't have any difficult people in this church, you're probably the difficult person. So (laughs) everyone, this church is perfect. There's no one difficult here. Oh, be careful. Uh, It might be you. Uh, You you know, you hang out with people. You go to community group with people. You're going to find that people can be difficult. You don't like someone's personality. You don't like what they say. You don't like what they don't say. You don't like how they treat other people. You don't like what they do here and there. And Paul, the apostle, calls us to bear with one another which is the opposite of not bearing with one another. What is not bearing? Bear, not bearing is ghosting. Hey, you've offended me. I'm out. You've run at the first sign of trouble. Hey, I don't like what I'm seeing here. I'm, I'm going to ghost the situation. Paul is calling us to be different, to stay committed to one another, to make the personal choice to care about one another, even though you don't always get along and even though you don't always like what you see in other people. And that is so different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world is hang out and spend time with people who are just like you. 
But the gospel calls us to be unified, not based on our cultural background or based on anything else, the color of our skin or what, how we were educated. The gospel calls us to be connected because of what Jesus has done in our lives. And because of that, it mixes a whole bunch of people together that wouldn't normally mix together. Now, I say that, that that's what we're supposed to do for following Jesus. But also, I want to comment that there and say this. There are extraordinary benefits for you and for me when we choose to pursue unity. There's actually something that you get out of this, too. Well, let me explain why. My wife, I'll use my wife, my wife, my wife has uh, extraordinary social skills and leadership skills. And one of the things that um, we've, we've learned, we've come to this conclusion, um, and, and uh, it's, been, uh, it's been externally verified. It's not just a husband bragging about her in a small church in Santa Monica on Sunday. Like if every job that she's held, she's come across as light years, just so far ahead in terms of interpersonal communication, leadership skills, connecting to, with people from the front, knowing how to navigate difficult issues with other people. And what we've decided and what we've come up with and what she's mentioned to me on a number of occasions is that all her years of being in the church, connecting with people, committing to be unified with others, working through situations that she wouldn't normally have to work through has caused her to develop skills that she wouldn't have normally had if she had just bounced uh, when working with those people. There's something that happens. When we are committed to other people, we learn how to be more mature. We gain more wisdom. We know how to connect with people better. We know how to read situations better. We know how to read rooms better. We actually grow personally when we stay committed to people who are not like us and who we have difficulty with. All right? Does this make sense? And so uh, the un- what we know is, first of all, the unchallenged life uh, is, uh, sees no change. But when we invite challenge into our lives... We are positioning ourselves to have to rise to the challenge. And when we rise to the challenge, we have to overcome things personally. And we have to ask God for grace for the situations that we don't understand. And as we persevere and as we push through, we actually become better. So over time, we actually grow as human beings. And that happens within the church. But then you release people who have been in the church, who are committed to each other, out into the world. It actually affects the way they do their work. It actually affects the way they get along with their neighbors. It affects how they interact with their family and friends who don't have a relationship with Jesus. There's a qualitative difference when we commit to each other because we grow from it. And so I would encourage you, if you're looking to grow in your interpersonal communication and leadership skills in your neighborhood or in your work... I would encourage you to stay committed to a church, even though you don't get along with everyone. By grinding it out, being involved in a community group, you will grow as a result of that. Okay? Um, Yeah. So if our calling and unity are important to Paul, do we just have to go figure it out? Or are there resources at our fingertips that we can pull on? Well, let me answer my own question. There are resources. It says in verse 11, we'll skip a few verses, and it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the church is a people who encourage you to chase your calling, Pursue unity and to use your gifts. And if you look in these verses, 
Paul teaches about five specific gifts that have been given to the church to equip them, to connect them with one another, and to mobilize them for good deeds. Every follower of Jesus has been equipped with at least one of these five gifts. In fact, every follower of Jesus usually has a primary and a secondary gift. And we call this, uh, uh, there's apostles, there's prophets, there's evangelists, there's pastors, also known as shepherds uh, and teachers. And Paul is saying that he, uh, that Paul is saying that God gave the church these five gifts so that the church could be what it needs to be for each other and for Christ and for the world. And we have everything we need within these five gifts to build each other up, to take care of each other, to equip each other for the good things that the church could and should be. And so part of why the church in America suffers is that we've developed a very perverted or limited, almost uh, diminished sense of what the church could and should be. Many times we think the pastor is the person who needs to do all the stuff. But what we get from Ephesians, what Paul is saying, is that the pastor is one of the people who gets to do the stuff. Pastor is one of the people that has some of the gifts. And most of the time, we look at the pastor and we say, you need to have the gift of teaching. And you need to have the gift of pastoring. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. And so this is why we say in Pacific City Church, everybody gets to play. Because Paul the Apostle, by the word of the Holy Spirit, has given us a vision that's just bigger than the pastor getting to do everything. It's a place where everyone gets to use their gifts to build and equip, uh, build up the church and equip each other and to take care of each other. A lot of times, we've used this illustration before, sometimes people think that the church is supposed to be like a football game. And in the football game, you've got all the people who are in the church, they're in the stands, and the pastor is down on the field, running the ball back and forth, and they yell, go pastor, run pastor, score a touchdown pastor, you can do it pastor. But that's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where everybody gets to play. So in the, in the difference in this church and what Paul is saying is that we are all out on the field. We get to make the plays. We get to score the touchdowns. And the pastors are on the sound lines cheering each other out, cheering you on, encouraging you and equipping you so that you can do the good work of the ministry of all the things that God has called you to do. The other thing I see here is that we're incomplete. We don't have everything it takes to do this whole thing on our own. We need each other. And this is the, goes the same as an illustration with the football team. Uh, you, if you have a football team that's made up of one person, that team will get demolished. It'll get destroyed. It's the same way with the church. We each have different gifts and talents, and we each have been given one of these gifts or more of these gifts so that we can equip and encourage the body of Christ. We cannot do this on our own. We need each other. So what are these gifts? Well, Paul the Apostle mentions them. And he says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And this is what we call in church world, we call this APEST for short. It's a little abbreviation. You get it? APEST. APEST. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, these skills are found in you. There's some of them that are dormant in each of you right now. And what I don't want you to hear is that you need to walk away and start calling yourself a shepherd. Or you need to be like, oh, I look like I'm an apostle. Like if you walk around and call yourself apostle Eric, uh, <laughs> sorry, didn't mean to call out Eric. <laughs> I'll pick on someone else. 
Apostle Jesse. <laughs> like if you call yourself Apostle Jesse, that's weird. What we're trying to do is get what we're trying to get at is that there's something inside of you that you bring to the table, a gift that you can use. And so what we see is each of these gifts make up everything that we need to equip and empower and encourage the church. We have apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers. Um, let's take apostles, for instance. These are the custodians of the DNA, the pioneers, the entrepreneurial architectural types. They like to invent things and start things. I happen to be one of these guys. I love it. I love starting new things, trying to build strategy, working on it. And if you've talked to me outside of this moment uh, when I'm on stage here, you'll see that in me. Um, you have people like that are prophetic. These are prophet types. These people, they try to embody what God is doing. They like to hear the, the revelatory word of God. They focus on prayer and obedience. They're like, they want to embody God's concerns. And they're usually the ones who are the questioners of the status quo. Like, guys, is this the thing we really should be doing? Some of you, you have that gift. You have the ability to question what's really going on in the room. That might be you're just a rebel or you might have kind of this gift of prophecy or this gift of being prophetic where you're able to pay attention to what's right and wrong and call the people of God to pay more attention to what's right. You have evangelists. Oh, boy. Have you ever spent any time with an evangelist? Now, and I encourage you, if you're an evangelist type, don't walk around and call yourself an evangelist because you'll be evangelizing to less people. Uh, <laughs> if you're in a busy plane, one way to have someone not sit next to you and ask you what you do is just call yourself an evangelist. You'll have an empty middle seat in no time. Um, an evangelist. These are your, like, they're just recruiter, entrepreneurial types. They're always trying to figure out what Jesus did and teaching us to do the same thing. And they're, they're always asking the question, will this help bring people into a growing relationship with Jesus? They're the people that you just love inviting people into your home and inviting people to church. And you're always having these conversations. And it's super weird where someone's like, you know what? I think I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. And you're like, oh, well, I didn't see that come. You like stumble across people that are ready to commit to Jesus. And you just love inviting people into life with God and the community of faith. Um, yeah. Then you have people like shepherds. These are like pastors. These, ask, these are the people that sit across from you. And they go, how are you doing? Really? And they, like, really care about how you're really doing. Uh, Patrick Vukovic, uh, who sits on our board, he is one of these people. Like, if, and he's, and, like, there's this one line, uh, line in, uh, how will this affect the organization and the people in the community? That is a question Patrick is always asking. The decision we're making, what we're doing strategically here, how this will affect the people we're serving. How can I help this person? How can I listen to them? How can I help them along? How can I nurture them? How can I build community with them? How can I connect with them? There are some of you that are deeply wired in this way where you just care about people. You're kind to people and you want the best for people. And you listen to people and they talk to you and it's like this whole thing. Uh, teachers is the last one. You love dispensing wisdom and educating and you are, you're really involved in theology and the scriptures. You're very uh, analytical and you're intellectual and philosophical. You really help, you really enjoy helping people understand what we're doing in terms of the scriptures and the Bible and all the things. Now, all these are really important and you have one of these things, at least one of these things in your life. And the way to figure this out is to take a test. You could take a test. We actually have a real formal test that you can take. And if you want it, why don't you send me an email? And I would love to send you that test. 
uh, and it's, a, it's called APES test, and it helps you identify, you know, what are the areas that I really am passionate about? They ask you a series of questions. It'll help you identify, you know, these, this, is, this is what I care about. But even if you don't take the test, each one of you has been given a special gift that allows you to contribute to the health and equipping of this community. We have everything we need in each other, not just the pastor, all of us, to do what God is asking us to do and to be, live, be everything we're supposed to be. And we have everything we need to build unity among us and to really to like care about God's concerns. So um, also another way to do this is come to Next Steps. There is a class immediately following this service called Next Steps. And we actually take a few tests in there that will help you identify some of your gifts and uh, that you can use uh, that uh, help you to focus on what you're good at. And oftentimes uh, in this church, we'll say um, every, every person is a minister, every task is important, and everybody is a 10 in some area. Um, and so what we want to do is not have people who are twos uh, trying to be like tens in areas that they don't have no business being in. Uh, and what we want to do is help you thrive and live and exist and serve in the areas that you're best suited for. So you can come to that class immediately following here and you can learn all about yourself. and It'll be awesome. So lastly, uh, Ephesians 4 in verse 14, it says, you know, if we're going to, if we understand who we are, the gifts that we have, if we understand that we're supposed to pursue unity and live up to the calling, what will happen as a result? What's going to happen? It says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And this is really cool. There's so much information in our world. There's so many competing ideas. So many marketers and businesses and influencers are seeking your attention to tell you what to do. It's hard to know what's right and what's wrong, what's wise and unwise. But if you want to know, if you do these things, you won't be tossed around by everything that's going on in culture. You'll be grounded in something that's real and you'll be able to understand God's will and you'll be able to mature as God designed you to be mature. Which leads to our last point. It means that we can become a both and disciple. Now, uh, we talk about both and a lot in this church. It comes from this book uh, called uh, Both And uh, by, Rich, by Rich Nathan. Uh, and um, in this book, Both And, um, it, it talks about what's it look like to be a both and Christian. Um, now, the problem with modern evangelicalism is that in much of what we do and understand, it's become an either or situation. We become too narrow-minded, too small-minded, too close-minded. Much of what we see is just either or. And when we talk about this church or people ask us about this church, I go, well, what kind of church are you? Do you care about the poor or do you care about the gospel? Do you care about feeding uh, those who are hungry or do you care about really diving into the work? Do you care about unity and helping people agree and getting everyone on the same page? 
Or are you all about diversity and caring about this mosaic that is the church? Do you focus on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do you focus on the demonstration? You want to see God do amazing works by physically healing people and manifestations of the spirit and yada, yada, yada. And over time, many of us over the last 30 to 40 years have just gotten tired of this conversation. We're tired of the either or church. Why can't we be a both and church? Why can't we do both? Why can't we care about the poor and care about the Bible? Why can't we lead people to Jesus and care about demonstrating the power of Jesus by seeing people healed in our services and healed in our lives? What would it look like not only to proclaim that the power of God is real by saving people and and having them enter into a real relationship with Jesus, but also demonstrating that the power is real and infecting us so much, so many ways that we actually care about those around us who are hurting and who are in pain. Why not both? There's two great commandments. It says, love God and love others. It almost like it represents the cross, the vertical beam, our relationship with God and the horizontal beam where we love and care about others. And we want to be a church just like Paul is saying here, that's mature in all ways, all things. We don't want to be a church that's just about one thing. We want to be a, be a church that cares about both things. And in every way, we don't want to be a church that's just for Democrats or Republicans. We want to be a church that says, look, you may have your political beliefs, but under this banner of Jesus Christ, all are welcome. And we don't want to be a church that's just consumed with the stress and anxiety of our day. But we want to tap in to something that is deeper, that comes from the spirit of God. And we don't want to be a church that's just one race. Or two races, we want to be a church that's full of all the races and all the ethnic identities. We don't want to be a segregated church. We want to be a both and church. We don't want to be a church that's just all about the proclamation of the gospel. You need to get saved. Hey, let's show you that the gospel is real. Talk to someone who's next to you and realize, wow, there is something real in their relationship with God. Something that I need in my life. We don't want to just care about our personal ethic. We want to care about our social ethic. We don't want to just be relevant. We also want to be orthodox in every way. Paul is calling the church to be full and complete. And when we come into this church and we say, God, give us eyes to see what you're doing. We are inviting him to speak to us, to become a both and church, a church that cares about all the things We just aren't going to be one church. We want to be a church that operates on all eight cylinders, a church that cares about every aspect of our community and each other. And as we do that, I think we are perfectly positioned to do what God has called us to do, not only in our own lives, but uh, in the lives of the people around us. So, amen. Uh, Why don't we all stand? We're going to worship together.